Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. We can't have complete abstinence because I see a lot of parents wanting to say, well, I'm just going to take their phone away or I'm not going to give them access to that. If you are an alcoholic, you can avoid alcohol. If you have trouble with cocaine, you can avoid cocaine. To me, this falls into more of the category of people who have real trouble with food. We can't just say, well, we're just going to take away food. For people who have trouble with sex, we're not just going to say, well, you shouldn't have sex ever again. So this is something that's just a part of our culture, a part of our worlds, and helping kids manage it is really what the goal is, I think. Not this all or nothing. We can't have an all or nothing approach to this thing. That It's not going away. The toothpaste is out. It's not going away. Welcome to season six of Fluster Clucks with Lynn Lyons, where we talk about a family's anxiety and all the big feelings too. We tackle the serious stuff without being too serious. And I'm your co-host, Robin. I'm Lynn's sister-in-law, and I'm here to ask your questions. And I'm Lynn Lyons. I'm an anxiety expert, speaker, mom, and author. And I've been a therapist for over 30 years. Parenting can be a fluster clucks, and I'm here to help you find your way. I'll give you concrete steps to take and the words to say. Hi, everybody. Welcome to this very exciting for me. I think it'll be exciting for you too. Episode of Fluster Clucks because I have a guest with me today. And also, what makes it a little different is that I don't have Robin here with me today. Robin is traveling. So, for the first time in our Fluster Clucks history, she is not here. She is here in spirit, but she assures me that I can handle things on my own. And with the guests that we have today, I am quite confident. I have Devorah Heitner here. If you don't know about Devorah's work, you should. Her new book, Growing Up in Public, was released last month. I love it. I devoured it. And really, it couldn't be better timed, I think, which when you write a book and you publish a book, you really hope that it sort of sneaks right into what's going on in the world. And man, oh man, has Devorah done that. She is an author. She is out spreading the word. She's doing a ton of speaking. She engages with schools and with parents. She's just got incredibly valuable information. It's so concrete, which is why when I read that book, I was like, oh, 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 oh. And a lot of the stuff that she talks about totally intersects with what I talk about with anxiety, not surprisingly. Devorah, thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much. I love your show and your work, and I'm so excited to talk because I think the intersection of anxiety and tech is so real. It is so real. Can I just ask you how you became interested in this and sort of how that evolved for you? Well, I wrote another book, ScreenWise, years ago now, like five years ago, and was traveling with that and speaking at schools for a while. And before that, I was a media studies professor. But I've been speaking to parents and a lot of parents were like, okay, I feel better about my kids' screen time and what they're like watching, but I'm still really nervous about what they're posting. And frankly, if there were pictures of me from middle school and high school and videos and even college, I would be very stressed out. I would be very worried. And I'm worried for my kid. This just doesn't seem like fair because 
developmentally, you should be free to like experiment with your identity and even just do things that are dumb when you're a kid and a teenager and not have to deal with the consequences beyond the immediate moment. There are consequences and we need to deal with them. And we did when we were kids, but they didn't last and it didn't get so widespread. So I think parents got so worried about reputation. And then as I started diving into those questions of peer surveillance and kids canceling each other and reputation, I also recognized that parents are actually playing a role sometimes in surveilling our kids and sometimes even adding to the anxiety of growing up in the digital age, even though we don't want to. I don't want to, I'm a teenager. I don't want to make it worse. I kind of think I'm answering the questions in this book that people were actually asking and answering a few that no one was asking, but I decided were important to answer. Yep. The question of surveillance, I think, and you have a great, is it the first chapter I think is on surveillance? Because this is something that comes up for me all the time when I'm talking to parents who are anxious, to parents who have anxious kids, because one of the biggest things that I am promoting in my work is the development of autonomy. And boy, does surveillance get in the way of that. One of the things I'm just wondering if you're hearing this or you're noticing this is the more that parents are surveilling their kids, the more we're normalizing surveillance. I'm also seeing that it's starting to become normal in friendships and then also in relationships. So we've got kids who are in romantic relationships, they're starting to have sexual relationships, and this idea of surveillance is really becoming something that is causing a lot of issues in relationships. And I'm just wondering, as you were writing about this and you're learning about this, are you seeing that trend also, that the surveillance is sort of moving into the peer realm also? A hundred percent. I mean, there's Snap Maps where kids can see where each other's locations are on Snapchat and kids don't love it and find it stressful. And obviously it can lead to feelings of exclusion if you can see where all your friends are at any given time. Or for me, it could lead to, I don't have it because it would make me nutsy and I don't really use Snapchat in the same way that most kids do. But I also would just feel like I'm just not that cool if I had it. Like, I don't know if I would feel left out because my friends don't all know each other. So it's extremely unlikely they'd all be together without me, unlike when you're in high school. But it is possible that they'd all be out on Saturday night and I'd be like, well, I'm home. What's wrong with me? think that is a lot to manage. But no one wants to take themselves off the map because especially when you're a teenager, you want to be regarded. You want people to know where you are. You want to think that people are thinking about you and you probably, I mean, all of us, our whole lives overestimate probably how much others are thinking about us. But the teenage years are like peak overestimating how much other people are thinking about you. And so this kind of feeds right into that and no one wants to take themselves off the map and sort of be forgotten. My boys are 23 and 25. They got smartphones pretty late in life because I was just a few years ahead of that expectation. But one of the things that I found with tracking kids is that I felt like it got in the way of them developing the ability to communicate responsibly with me. That if I took all of the pressure off them, all the onus off them, and that all I had to do was look at their phone and find out when they were showing up, when they were going to be back from their basketball game, when they were going to be here or there. They didn't have a responsibility to say, hey, mom, the bus is going to be late. Don't come pick me up now. Or, hey, mom, I was at Sam's house, but now I'm going over to Brendan's house. It took the onus off them to lift up their heads and communicate. That's one of the things that I think with the surveillance, it's really getting in the way of them learning how to responsibly communicate. I know. I'm so glad that my son's cross-country coach this semester accepts texts because I do think 
expecting kids to email may not be the most realistic thing in the world. And I know there are all kinds of questions about whether anyone should be texting teachers, but when you do it through an app like Remind, I think it becomes a lot safer. Like they're not using one another's personal phone. So I think that takes away a lot of the kind of concern about texting. But I do think for him to be like, oh, I can't go to cross country today because I have this thing with debate or whatever and have the coach be able to get back and have that be his responsibility and not mine just like baby steps, but these pandemic kids who my kid didn't go to sixth grade, he's starting high school, having sort of never really started middle school. He just like missed some and his whole crew and cohort missed these like big onboarding experiences. And some kids have, I think, tons of experience and executive function to kind of organize their lives and speak to adults. But many high school kids I talked to and even and middle school kids even more and even college students that I taught were intimidated to email professors just weren't quite there with that communication. And I think if we take the onus off them completely, like you never have to text anyone because you're just, we'll just life 360 you and find your location. It's not a great way to teach communication. Like if I'm going to be late, I don't want my husband to find out because he's tracking me. (laughs) Right, exactly. It's just courtesy, right? It's being able to say, oh, I'm responsible to let other people know what's going on rather than not having to do that. Yeah, I totally agree. One of the things when I was reading your book, and this is something that I talk about a lot, but there was something I learned that I did not know about because I am not a big fan of parent portals. I feel like they create an enormous amount of conflict in families that in terms of anxiety, when I look at sort of compulsive behavior and the dopamine hit that you get, I treat OCD, right? So this is just more content for OCD to grab onto that I have to be constantly looking at these grades all the time. I mean, up to 20 to 30 times a day, kids are checking their grades. I didn't know because my kids are older. I didn't know about Class Dojo. And just in case anybody doesn't know what this is, it's a behavior tracking app. And there are things like you raised your hand before speaking out or you stayed in your seat, or you were lining up correctly. So you earn points for that, but then you get points taken away if you speak out in class or if you're disruptive in any way. So the whole day, earning points and losing points, earning points and losing points. I mean, I just can't imagine. I mean, I guess I can't imagine, which is why it's so appalling to me. You have like a little eight-year-old kid who's got ADHD, and the whole day they're just getting doing, 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 doing. Adults would not tolerate this in their workplace. Yes. I almost want the scary music in your podcast to accompany Dojo because I'm actually very grateful. My kid is sort of class Dojo generation, but we didn't experience it. We did experience some other behavior monitoring systems at school that are more old school that I also have problems with. But this takes the sort of public shaming chart that was like in front of the classroom where kids got clipped up to like red or green or yellow. And I'm sure a lot of kids you've worked with have like traumatic memories of these experiences of being publicly shamed for behavior, which we know is about self-regulation, which we know comes much more easily to some kids than others. One of the points that I make in my book is that using an app like Class Dojo, which takes that behavior chart and shares it with parents all day, is not telling parents, first of all, anything you didn't know. Like if you have a kid who struggles to self-regulate, you're not going to be like, shocker, Mike spoke without raising his hand. Like, I can't believe it. But you don't need to be at your work desk at 11 a.m. getting that notice that your kid spoke without raising their hand. What you want to know is that the teacher is compassionately dealing with your kid's self-regulation challenges and and also, frankly, just accepting that some self-regulation expectations actually may not be developmentally appropriate for all kids. Correct. And that we have good days and bad days. Yeah. In your book, you said that 95% of elementary schools 
use Class Dojo? Let me be really clear. It's in 95% of schools according to their data, which means that some teachers are choosing to use it because this is a teacher-led app. Class Dojo, the founder was very smart and was like, I'm going to go to teachers with this app. So schools don't have to adopt it. And I actually interviewed for the book, a school district where they forbid it. You could be at a school where the teacher across the hall is using it and your kid's teacher isn't. Or your kid's teacher could be using it very minimally for a few features, but not using it to track behavior. But it is fundamentally a behavior tracking app. And many teachers who use it are sharing that data with parents and also sometimes publicly in some ways with the kids, which means your kid is at risk of being sort of publicly shamed and admonished in the classroom. And they're doing it in this group way where it's like, oh, your table gets or loses points. If your kid struggles with self-regulation, everyone at their table is going to be mad at them because they didn't get to go to the treasure box because their points got lowered because again, your kid got up out of their seat or whatever. It's awful. (laughs) Yeah. As I was reading it, I used the word awful in my head as well. It's terrible. It's really bad. And I think it's really damaging. And what I heard from parents is that even the most compliant and self-regulated kids, like picture a neurotypical girl, which is like who elementary school is designed for, (laughs) you know, the behavior expectations and sedentary expectations are probably not really designed for any kids. I'm going to say like even neurotypical girls should certainly move more during the elementary school day. So I just want to put in a plug. I was that girl compliant enough. Like I didn't get in trouble a lot. Those are the kids who probably could do most of the things, right? Like those are the kids who are not getting in trouble that much. Like a neurotypical girl in second grade is probably not getting in trouble a lot for like calling out in class, for getting up out of her seat. Like she can probably hold that together even if it's not great for her. And these are kids who are also internalizing and they're getting in trouble because they want to be a good kid. The one time they mess up, like one of the moms I interviewed for the book had this kid who was so into learning and so into school and was able to do most of the developmentally inappropriate things that schools want little kids to do and still felt bad because the one time she sort of did call out in enthusiasm in class, you know, she got dinged and she noticed that there was multiple standards, that different kids were actually being held to different standards which is a way for teachers to try to make this kind of behavior tracking more fair by, you know, noticing that kids who struggle with self-regulation maybe shouldn't get dinged as much to try to prevent what you were just talking about. But then this poor girl who felt so good about school and was so trying so hard just had so much anxiety that the teacher didn't like her anymore, that she was out of that teacher's good regard. And if you think kids don't care what teachers think of them, you are very wrong. Kids absolutely care and they know. Yeah. Yeah. And I think about the kids that I work with with perfectionism. If they get a 97 on a test, they're devastated. What I'm trying to say to kids is we're talking about flexibility here. We're talking about good days and bad days. We're talking about strengths and weaknesses. You are a person made up of all sorts of different things and all sorts of strengths and weaknesses. When I was reading this chapter, I was like, oh my God, I can't believe this exists. And then I thought, well, yeah, I can believe it exists, but pretty shocking to me. Well, and I think what the existence of this app really shows us is that teachers are not getting enough support in learning how to effectively manage classrooms and that schools are places that fundamentally still very much misunderstand behavior. Yeah, I agree because I am in schools all the time talking about anxiety. One thing that I've sort of accepted over time is when I go into a school, I make a presumption, which I know now is not accurate that most people have got some information or some training about anxiety. And even worse, if we're talking about OCD, and that just is not the case. I think you're right that it really does sort of illuminate that problem, doesn't it? It really, really does. All right. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I have a few other questions for you because I know that parents are going to be so eager to hear your tips. 
People love to hear the do's and don'ts. So when we come back, we're going to talk about that. Awesome. I really have to pay attention to hydrating properly. I work out a lot. I talk all the time, as you know. I am pretty active and I don't drink enough water. So I'm constantly thinking about how it is that I am going to hydrate in the best way possible. And I'll tell you, if my water has a little bit of flavor, it's so much easier for me. And if I can get those electrolytes, if I can get more bang for my buck, it's just so much better. I have been using liquid IV. I put it into a huge glass. I put it into the refrigerator. It's cold. It's very tasty. I've been putting it in my water bottle when I go to the gym. The packaging is so convenient. I actually look forward to drinking it, which is not something that comes naturally to me. I love the lemon lime flavor. They've got a sugar-free option. That is really great. So I think that if you're somebody like me that has a difficult time getting in the amount of hydration that you need for your body, Liquid IV is a great option. One stick, 16 ounces of water, it hydrates better than water alone. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, and it doesn't have all that sugar. It doesn't have artificial sweeteners, eight vitamins and nutrients just for your everyday wellness. It's non-GMO and free from gluten, dairy, and soy. However you hydrate, grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier, sugar-free in bulk nationwide at Costco, or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use code FLUSTER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code FLUSTER at liquidiv.com. Picture the thing that you've always wanted to learn, and now picture that you're learning it from the person who's literally the best in the world at it. It's fantastic, and that's what you get with Masterclass. I recently listened to Matthew Walker's talk on sleep and the importance of consistency with sleep. I loved Bobby Brown's masterclass, gave me all these tips about putting on makeup because, you know, I'm in front of a camera sometimes and I want to look good and Bobby was such a big help. So this year, learn from the best to become your best with masterclass. Don't just talk about improving. Masterclass actually helps you do it. Like I actually put on makeup the way that Bobby Brown taught me how to put on makeup. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Don't just talk about improving. Masterclass actually helps you do it. Masterclass offers over 180 instructors. So whether you want to master negotiation with Chris Voss, Think Like a Boss with Martha Stewart, or maybe you want to learn how to just make your makeup look better with Bobby Brown or sleep better with Matthew Walker, with Masterclass, you get unlimited access to intimate one-on-one classes with the world's best. I loved it. There are over 200 classes to pick from. New classes are added every single month, like a class that talks about your gut health. So many interesting things to learn. So every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's absolutely no risk. Right now, our listeners will get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash Fluster. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash fluster. Masterclass.com slash 
fluster. You know, when you're listening to a song on the radio and you just have this feeling that the song was written about you or that it was someone that you love trying to say something to you? Well, now imagine the power to gift that same incredible feeling to someone you love with an original song that actually is about them and about your relationship, and that Songfinch writes just for you. Songfinch lets you create an original radio quality song inspired by your own life and the people that you love. It's completely unique, it's personal, and it lasts forever. I had the pleasure of creating a family song with Songfinch about our summer celebrations that we have every year. I knew it was going to make everybody cry, and it certainly did. I got to be honest, I was even crying, giving all of the information and helping personalize my song with the writer that I chose. He absolutely delivered a beautiful acoustic song that captured exactly what I was looking for, and it was so fun to share with the family. So whether you're song is for Father's Day, an upcoming graduation, a wedding or an anniversary, or even just a gift to show your loved one how much you care, start your song now to lock in one of Songfinch's top artists. Don't waste another dollar on more stuff. It only takes four to seven days, but that song will last forever. For a limited time, Songfinch is letting our listeners upload their song to Spotify for free so you and the lucky person or people can listen to it anywhere, anytime. So go to songfinch.com slash fluster and start your song. After you purchase, you'll be prompted to add Spotify streaming for your original song for free, a $50 value. Again, the URL is songfinch.com slash Fluster. Don't forget to share your song with us too in our Facebook group, songfinch.com slash fluster. Okay, we're back. All right. So we're back here with the amazing Devorah Heitner, whose new book, Growing Up in Public, has just been published. By the time this podcast comes out, it's probably been out for several weeks now. And Devorah has been making the rounds, talking about this and sharing what is just incredibly valuable information. Okay, so Devorah, one of the other chapters that really caught my attention was the chapter about self-disclosure. And one of the things that I hear a lot is that adults are just so much more uncomfortable with a level of self-disclosure that's much more common for kids. But there are good ways and bad ways to self-disclose. There are good ways and bad ways to use social media to reveal things about yourself. And it becomes, for me, an issue of, which I talk about all the time that I learned from my mentor, Michael Yapko, the concept of differentiation. The ability to differentiate between when you disclose and when you don't, between what you share, who you share it with. Those are choices that we want kids to make because it's not black or white. It's not all or nothing. As you were researching this book and writing this book, what were some of the things that really jumped out at you about this concept of self-disclosure? I initially was more on the side of, I'm a privacy-loving Gen Xer, why are kids oversharing? And then I started talking with kids and learning the ways kids are really on the front lines of destigmatizing, talking about things like mental health, for example, and LGBTQ plus identities and neurodivergent identities. I recognize that there's a lot of really positive aspects to the ways kids are disclosing and changing the culture. 
That said, I think when kids share really vulnerable experiences, sometimes they are hoping for a response that they're not going to get or for a level of support that's very unlikely on social media. And often what we see is kids' existing social status gets reinforced. You know, if you have a kid who's already got a strong social group or is popular, if you will, or even just has, again, like a robust friend group, even if they don't identify as popular, they're going to get a more supportive response. But if you have a kid who's struggling socially and they go to social media and reveal something more personal about themselves, they may not get that support, which is tremendously unfair, but that's kind of the reality of the situation. And it also depends in what ways kids reveal. Kids are very critical of one another sometimes. Like kids are supportive in some ways. Kids are much more supportive of neurodivergence and LGBTQ plus identities in some ways in some communities. So that's, I'll qualify that. They can also be awful to one another and mean and very intolerant, but there are ways that they can be very supportive. And they certainly are more linguistically aware. You'll see hashtags like ADHD or PAN or Demi and like the kids know what they mean. And adults are like, what in the heck are they talking about? I've never heard of that hashtag or I don't know about that identity. And I think that's important. The kids are kind of literate in this stuff in a different way. At the same time, you brought up, you know, your recent writing about self-diagnosis. And I agree, like self-diagnosis is a very complicated and thorny issue. We can come back to that maybe later. So let me just say about kids self-disclosing, it's very tricky because in one way, I'm really excited about what they're doing. And I truly believe that kids are making the world better and that we should fight for a better world and not to silence kids. In other words, if your kid wants to come out, they identify, say, as gay and they want to come out online, you might be worried and you would be understandably worried. Like, Listen, statistics of national school climate show that gay kids are getting harassed in school. They are experiencing homophobia at the same time. Your kid may have a supportive friend group. They probably have given some real thought to coming out. They're not just coming out with no plan. It's less likely to be impulsive than you might think. It's more likely that they have really considered it. And there's some real upsides to coming out online. One girl I interviewed told me, hey, this is a lot easier than coming out to everyone I meet. Like it actually, like I get it done. It's done. Then they can look me up on Instagram. It's in my bio. It's good. If they're homophobic, they can leave me alone. If it's a boy that was going to ask me out, they'll know not to try. Like it's just really great. And it's still somewhat locked down. It's her personal profile has some safety on it and some, you know, privacy measures. So she felt like this is great and it, it saves me a lot of energy. And you can also delete the negative comments, which you see, like if you watch even the Netflix show Heartstopper, which I love and refer to a lot, and I think does a really good job of showing the ways kids use tech, even though it's a fictional story based on a graphic novel. It still shows both a couple in the first season, two girls in, in, a, in a relationship come out. And then in the second season, Nick comes out as bisexual and as being in a relationship with Charlie. And in both cases, you see them going through the responses and editing out the negative responses. And what an empowering thing to be able to do. So in that way, it's awesome. On the other hand, when parents say, what if my kid is coming out not as gay, but like as neurodivergent? What if they can't get a job? And again, I would argue for a world where neurodivergent people don't face that kind of discrimination and they face more understanding and accommodation at work. And there is the question of, do you want to work at a place that wouldn't hire someone with ADHD anyway, right? But I do think it's important for parents to recognize that the kids are in a fundamentally different world and that their whole generation will be filled with people who have come out, whether it's neurodivergence, whether it's queerness, whether it's mental health issues. And we are living in a very different world than when I was in high school in the 1990s and saw a therapist and told no one 
none of my friends knew I saw a therapist when I was a teenager. And some of them were probably also seeing therapists, but some of us talked about it. And now we live in a world where kids could disclose that to a friend. And I'm really grateful to live in a world where a kid could be like, got to bounce. I've got therapy. Yeah. I still respect kids' rights to keep it private. So I'm not saying that if your kid is in therapy, they need to tell their friends. It's totally up to them. And I think it's totally okay to choose to keep it private. Right. And I think from the perspective of being that therapist that people are coming to and talking about stuff, for me, and I've talked about this and written about this, the concern that I have often is that the information they're getting about mental health at this point is really not great. If I am looking at kids that are looking up whether or not they have OCD and they're getting information from Khloe Kardashian, or I'm looking up kids that are trying to determine whether or not they're on the spectrum, even adult influencers actually that I look at, like people that are pretty well known, when I hear the way they talk about anxiety, sometimes when I hear the way they talk about OCD, when they talk about depression, oh my gosh, it just makes my, like I'm making this face now that, oh, it's so cringy to me. And the other thing too, and you address this in the book, which I think is fabulous, is that what happens when the support that one is getting, particularly for mental health issues, isn't really support, but it actually is more of taking on an identity that's permanent where it shouldn't be. Depression is not a permanent disorder, and they're learning, unfortunately, how to do the disorder in a way that they wouldn't have figured out on their own. I think a kid who's in treatment for something like, say, an eating disorder or, or anything that could be really reinforced by participating in a community that's not really about recovery, then that is a kid who, as much as I think mentoring over monitoring, that is a kid who I would be much more careful about their online access and what communities they're part of. And that should be a treatment plan that they have with their therapist. Because this is, if you have a kid with a serious phobia, with an eating disorder, you know, something that's interfering with their daily lives and their health, causing school avoidance, et cetera, like those are situations where hopefully you are in a treatment plan. There is a third person involved. It's not just the parent and the kid. Because I think in general, parents should not just randomly monitor their kids. And I think that does increase anxiety and increase conflict and decrease autonomy, which is all not good. But on the other hand, if you have a kid who's just been released from inpatient for like an ED, that's a kid who probably should have their phone for only a limited amount of time. Like I don't want to cut that kid off from their friend. But that kid should not be getting on Pinterest and looking at recipes. Right. That's toxic. So we have to just be careful. And I think we have to treat it. And it's tricky because you cannot treat the internet and social media the way you would treat another substance, for example. Like, and I know people like Anna Lemke have made the connection, you know, in her work and sort of talked about this as like a substance that you can be addicted to. And I'm very careful about that. And there's real limits, I think, to the addiction metaphor with tech. At the same time, there is problematic use. And I agree with that. But I'll just say that I do think for some people, the relationship with tech does get really tricky. But unlike an illegal drug or alcohol, where you could just eliminate it from your life and be in recovery that way, there is no life that I predict for these kids that is going to be a completely unplugged life. Like even if you're running your organic farm, your organic farm is going to need a website. I don't believe that complete opting out is an option. So to come back to kids in real struggle, I do think those kids for a time may need to have a more controlled access until they are in a more even place, in a more recovered place where they can maybe have more full access. 
also need to be able to have self-knowledge to say like, maybe this app should never be on my phone. Like for a kid with OCD, the grading app should never be on their phone. I mean, I would say for most kids, the grading app shouldn't be on their phone, but I do know kids who could have the grading app on their phone without it becoming a problem. I'll put it that way. Ideally, it's not on anyone's phone, but I think there are kids who could have it on their phone and they'd still only check it every couple of weeks when they really need to check it, but they wouldn't be checking it multiple times a day. The tricky part is that if somebody is coming out of treatment for an eating disorder, we're all very clear about what are we going to put in place and what's part of the treatment plan. The trickier part is for kids that aren't getting professional help. So they're using their social media as their treatment, and that becomes really tricky. A point that you just made that I think is so important when you're talking about we can't have complete abstinence because I see a lot of parents wanting to say, well, I'm just going to take their phone away or I'm not going to give them access to that. If you are an alcoholic, you can avoid alcohol. If you have trouble with cocaine, you can avoid cocaine. To me, this falls into more of the category of people who have trouble with food. We can't just say, well, we're just going to take away food. For people who have trouble with sex, we're not just going to say, well, you shouldn't have sex ever again. So this is something that's just a part of our culture, a part of our worlds, and helping kids manage it is really what the goal is, I think, not this all or nothing. We can't have an all or nothing approach to this thing. That It's not going away. The toothpaste is out. It's not going away. Absolutely. All right. We're going to take a quick break. And then I have a few rapid fire questions for you so that we can help parents have some really good takeaways. So we'll be right back. Robin and I travel a lot. And part of traveling is that you learn that you have to compromise, right? So maybe you're not going to get the best seat on the plane. Well, you know where you shouldn't compromise? You shouldn't compromise with your health care. When it comes to your health, there's no compromising, everybody. Don't go back to that one doctor who didn't really pay attention to you, who rushed you through your appointments. Check out ZocDoc. This is the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. And you can search by location, availability, insurance, so literally no compromises here. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. Once you find the doc you want, you can book them immediately. You don't have to wait. You don't have to be on hold with a receptionist. These doctors all have verified reviews from real patients. So the typical wait time to see a doctor booked on ZocDoc is just between 24 and 72 hours. That's it. You can even score same-day appointments. I have two young adult sons. They are always needing something, right? We've had broken elbows. We've had tonsils. We've had this. We've had that. If I were a young person, if I were a parent trying to help my young person find a doctor, this is what I would use. So, Go to ZocDoc.com slash Fluster and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash Fluster. ZocDoc.com slash Fluster. Feel like you're the martyr in your family? You're not alone. Hey, this is Joanne. And Brie. And we're from the No Guilt Mom podcast. Brie, we talk to a lot of moms. Yeah, we sure do. And if you're a mom who has a to-do list that is so massive that you get overwhelmed and you shut down. Or if you fall into the habit of doing everything for everyone and don't know how to change it, 
we can help you become a no guilt mom. We're going to take you from family martyr to family model. That's role model so that you role model the behavior that you want to see out of your kids. You're going to go from being tired and overwhelmed to energized and guilt free. Every week, you'll get actionable strategies that you can implement right away from the experts that we interview and from us. We also have a whole lot of fun. So check out the No Guilt Mom podcast everywhere you listen to your favorite shows. Okay, so now back to the show. Okay, so here are the questions that I get all the time, Devorah, and I bet they're the ones that you get frequently too. What age should you give your child a smartphone? I would say when they kind of need to be in the world with significant independence and when they need to be making their own social plans. So work your way back from when it would be kind of ridiculous or problematic socially. High school, you know you can't make your kids social plans. You know, you're not going to call another 10th grader's mom to make a play date for your sophomore in high school. You may end up texting that mom about pickup from the amusement park out of state or something. So I'm not suggesting, you know, we're never going to be involved with other parents, but you wouldn't even want your kid to go out of state to that amusement park without a phone. So work your way back from like that kid in 10th grade to, okay, what about eighth grade? Do you want your kid to be able to make their own plans or do you want to be in charge of their plans? What about sixth grade? At some point, probably for a lot of kids in the middle grades or middle school, you want them to start taking over, making their own plans, and you want them to be able to be maybe in whatever is downtown for you or whatever is kind of out in the library or someplace in your community that's not with you and when they need to be home alone. So those are a few independence milestones that I think are kind of phone necessity or some access to a phone. Now you could get a really simple phone for those situations and not get your kid a full smartphone yet. Do you think that's coming back into popularity Do you see that as a trend moving back toward, I'm going to give my child a phone that isn't a smartphone? Or do you think that's not really happening? I don't see it in a big way. I mean, there are some sort of baby phones on the market. And I can give you a link to an article in Romper where my friend Meg St. Esprit summarizes a bunch of the options out there. There's like starter phones, if you will. I think most parents give their kids an old phone of theirs and it's going to be a smartphone or they go to a watch with especially elementary schoolers. I think the watches can also drive anxiety. I have some questions about the watches, (laughs) but a lot of families love them. But I just, I'm really leery of them being used as a tracking and surveillance device. So I think the watches are a kind of a yellow light place for me, but I do understand why kids and families like them. And they certainly are easier to keep track of, which would have been an issue. Like if we had gone down that road with my kid in elementary school, My kids, there was a pandemic and he didn't get to do the end of elementary school or the beginning of middle school. So, you know, he was out of school for almost two years here, but we didn't need a phone because he was just home. But we actually got it partly because we wanted to be able to leave him home alone and we don't have a house phone. And that's a huge driver, I think, for some parents. Some parents are doing it because they have very popular elementary or middle school kids and their phones are getting blown up by their kids' friends. And, you know, there's only so many texts you want to get from 11-year-olds before you're like, wow, I'm spending my day fielding my kids' social life. But you don't have to give them 24-7 access to it. You don't have to allow them to add social apps. There are a lot of decisions you can make as a parent that can sort of slow your roll, if you will, with a phone and give them an opportunity to, for example, get good at things like texting before they add an app like Instagram or Discord. What about, I think you'll agree with me, but I'm curious, I think phones in the bedroom, particularly for kids. I think they're not so great for adults either, actually. I've said on the podcast, my alarm clock broke. And so I started using my phone as an alarm clock. And boy, did I quickly start to develop bad habits that I swore I would never develop, right? I mean, I'm like waking up and looking at Twitter before I get out of bed. Yikes. 
It's like reaching over and lighting up a cigarette. I'm pretty adamant with parents that one of the things that we need to model for kids and to pay attention is to keep those phones out of the bedroom. The research about sleep and attention and all that kind of stuff, is that something that you would be with me on or do you have a more nuanced view of that as well? I think out of the bedroom, certainly for younger kids, 100%. I don't see any benefit from middle schooler and elementary schooler and much more downside. I think by the end of high school, they should be learning to self-regulate because they're going to potentially be in college or living independently. And I don't think that should be necessarily their first experience with self-regulation. That said, I mean, you know that a high schooler in love like might stay up all night and text their sweetie. Like, There's a lot of things that might happen at night. I worry about for younger kids is more like the disinhibition late at night in the social conflict. You know, nothing good happens after 11 on that middle school group text. The longer you can kind of, I think, enforce kids staying off of that, it's actually a relief also to kids to not have to explain why they're not there to be like, oh, my mean parents don't let me have my phone at night. And that excuse does take you kind of through middle school. By early high school, I think kids can say their own thing. Like I have early practice. I, you know, I need my sleep, whatever. And even putting a boundary with friends, like, don't text me at one in the morning. Like, I've got practice. Like, you know, I've got chorus. Like, I got to be up at 6 a.m. Like, don't do this. And I think I want to appeal to kids' own desire to get their sleep and use every authority figure you can, like the coach, the music teacher, anyone who can appeal to even their vanity at this age, just be like, you're going to look cuter if you get your sleep. (laughs) I was young and I avoided sleep by staying up, sometimes sneaking the phone or reading late at night, way before TikTok and Discord. And I was staying up late. And, you know, was exhausted. My parents appealed to me with the hope that I would get to be a little taller because you grow in your sleep. Oh, yes. Wow, that's very clever. And so I really was hoping for a 5'4". I never got there, but I'm still 5'3". <laughs> Probably <laughs> should be at this point. But like the hope that I would get taller was somewhat inspiring for me. Okay. And last question. In your talking about this and your research and your observation, I am seeing a lot of parents who are really having a hard time following their own rules, bringing phones to the dinner table. There's that term technoference where little kids, babies are really finding that they're not connecting. There's a lot of stuff. When I see a two-year-old with the smartphone in the grocery store, it breaks my heart because that's when I would talk to my kids. Look at the yellow. Look at the blue. But a lot of parents using their devices, using their phones in a way that is modeling for kids exactly what we don't want to model, which is, for me, disconnection, lack of empathy, lack of eye contact, all of that stuff that is really preventative when we're talking about mental health and social connection. What are you hearing from parents? What are you seeing? What advice can you give to people listening about their own technology use? I think we all could be more mindful about our use of tech. And I definitely include myself. And I'm sure my kid and my spouse would be happy to give you examples of like ways that I've fubbed them, like ignored them and been like, no, no, but I'm launching my book or no, but this is really important. And I I think either of my close family members could say like, but my thing is really important too. And I think it's very important to not feel like it's your stuff is too important and to recognize that your family or your friends or the people you're actually with in the room are the most important. So having rooms where your phones don't go, like we try not to bring phones or computers into actually the room where we watch TV, but it's like the room where we do that together. We never bring to the table. That actually we're pretty good about. I would say that table is less of a conflict. Sometimes phones want to sneak in when we're watching TV and I'm kind of guilty of that. My son will be like, wait, didn't you write in your first book screen-wise, like no double screening? <laughs> so 
I think that's really important. And then obviously kids are very sensitive to like, if you're texting and driving, if you're asking them how their day was and asking questions that are specific, like how did this thing go or that thing go? And then you ask again, because you didn't really listen to the answer. Kids hate that. I work with kids at schools. And one of the things I love to do with them is design apps that address some of these problems. I've had kids design an app to keep their parents from sharing photos without permission and design an app to keep their parents just off their phone because they're obsessed. Yeah, that's great advice. Is there anything that we didn't talk about, any nugget, any gem, any warning that you want to put out there that you really want people to hear? I just think the most important thing we can do is stay curious. Stay curious about our kids' experiences. Stay curious about what they're learning, the positive and challenging experiences they're having on social media. Be in the conversation with them. We really want to mentor our kids and not just monitor them. And we can learn from them and the experiences they're having in digital communities. So I would say you know, stay curious and also talk with your friends. I mean, my book comes with a discussion guide and there's lots of other great books on this topic and articles. Get together with your friends and read an article or a book and talk about it because I think as we parent, we're often very isolated and I think screen time is one of those issues. We tend to be like a little embarrassed maybe about what we don't know and maybe not talk to other parents and other parents can be great resources and just sounding boards for this stuff. Fantastic. That's such great advice. Thank you so much for joining me. As I said, I loved your book. I love the information you're putting out there. It couldn't have come at a better time, this post-pandemic place where we're just all trying to sort of figure out where we go from here. Everybody, you should grab a copy of Growing Up in Public. Thank you for being here. And I wish you all the best with your endeavors and your information. It's just such valuable stuff. So thank you so much. Thank you. I feel the same way about your work. I'm really happy to be in this conversation. Oh, thanks. Thanks for listening. And if you found this podcast helpful, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find this information. And if you'd like to dig deeper on any of these topics, we have specialized playlists on our Spotify profile, and the link is in the show notes. Topics like teens, depression, and OCD. Bye, Lynn. Bye, Robin. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy.